Lord is King. Let the earth, earth rejoice. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. The confusion stops here. On today's program, we're going to talk about active participation at Holy Mass and what that actually means. And we're also going to be looking at some essential principles for your spiritual life. But to get things rolling, this coming, coming Sunday is the third Sunday of Advent, also known as Gaudete Sunday, from the first word of the introit, Gaudete, which means rejoice. So even though Advent is traditionally a penitential season, a time of preparation for the coming of the Divine Infant at Christmas, the third Sunday reminds us to rejoice always. And therefore, on this Sunday, as on Elitare Sunday in Lent, things lighten up a bit, and the priest uh, trades, trades his violet vestments for rose-colored vestments. And there's a, a note of joy in the celebration. So <clears throat> let's begin with the readings for Gaudete Sunday, this coming Sunday, in the extraordinary form of the Holy Mass. The epistle is taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your modesty be known to all men. The Lord is nigh. Be nothing solicitous, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your petitions be made, made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasseth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does it mean? What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Now, this is a topic that we've taken up several times over the past year, I guess, since the coming of the whole COVID hysteria. And to rejoice in the Lord always means to remember the grace by which God called us to the true faith and gave us the hope of, et of eternal salvation, regardless of our circumstances. Even to rejoice in our tribulations and in our adversities for the Lord's sake, as St. Paul did. And it also encourages us to give good example by modesty and an edifying life and to try and fix our, our thoughts and desires on God, who will never fail us if we make our wants known to him by prayer and supplication and give him thanks for all the benefits we receive. And this epistle reminds us that in times of need and sorrow and dejection, the best means to relieve our troubled hearts is, is prayer, in which we give ourselves up to uh, God's love and mercy like Anna, the mother of Samuel the prophet, did, or Susanna when she was falsely accused and condemned to death, Daniel in the lion's den, Joseph being sold into slavery, all of the many servants of God in Scripture and all throughout history. They prayed to God to be delivered from their afflictions, and they received divine help and consolation. And so St. James tells us, is any one of you sad? Let him pray. And of course, St. Paul encourages us not to be solicitous about anything. Now, solicitous, solicitous means worried or concerned. So, in other words, don't be anxious about anything, he says. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with, with thanksgiving, let our requests be known to God. So, when you're sad or discouraged, you follow his example, and you lift up your soul to God in prayer. Now, uh, the Holy Gospel according to St. John, taken from John Chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. At that time, the Jews sent from, sent from Jerusalem priests and Levites to John, that's John the Baptist, to ask him, Who art thou? 
and he confessed and did not deny. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou the prophet? And he answered, no. They said, therefore, unto him, who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of, voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they that were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, why then dost thou baptize if thou be not Christ, nor Elias, nor the prophet? Jesus answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there hath stood one in the midst of you whom you know not. The same is he that shall come after me, who is preferred before me, the latchet of whose shoe I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethania beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So, lots of stuff in this gospel. First off, why did the Jews send messengers to John the Baptist to ask who he was? Well, it was because his baptizing, his preaching, uh, you know, his austerity and his penitential way of life, all dressed in camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey and so forth, it made such an impression on people that they didn't take him for an ordinary prophet, but they thought this might be the Messiah himself. And, and, and furthermore, the Jews believed that either Elias or Elijah or, or one of the other prophets would return to earth to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And that's, and that's why when St. John denied that he was Christ, they asked if he was Elias or if he was that prophet. But he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He said this, said this out of humility, but he told the truth. And he was not the prophet predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, because the book of Revelation tells us that Elias and Enoch will come before the second coming of Christ, the final judgment. And this is why our Lord himself said that St. John the Baptist would come in the spirit of Elijah, or the spirit of Elias. You know, St. John the Baptist, rather, he said, I am the voice of one, one crying in the wilderness, make straight the, the way of the Lord. That's the words of the prophet Isaiah. And so how do we do that? Uh, and the answer that John, give, John gives is by uh, to repent, to, to do sincere penance which consists in more than, uh, you know, just going to confession or making good resolutions, but to bring forth fruits worthy of penance, which is what our Lord says in, in Matthew 3, verse 8, and coincidentally in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, also kind of a weird coincidence. But what does that mean? What does it mean to bring forth fruits worthy of penance? And, and how do we do it? Well, to bring forth fruits worthy of penance, we must try our best to make amends for the sins of the past, and use all possible means to avoid committing those sins again in the future. And furthermore, we need to love and serve God every bit as much as, and more, than we loved and served the world before our conversion. And yet, and there's still more to learn from this gospel. For one thing, always to speak the truth, like St. John the Baptist, to not want to, to, to appear to be more or better than we really are. And in particular, to repent, which repent means to turn back, right? So to sincerely turn back to God. And so, like before you make your confession, you should make a thorough examination of conscience. To ask yourself, the way the Pharisees asked St. John the Baptist, who art thou? How do I stand before God? How do I treat my neighbor? How do I follow the commandments? 
And we learn from St. John the Baptist also, so I, I think above all, to be humble. You, know, you think about it, he could have passed for the Messiah if he wanted to, but he didn't. In fact, he considered himself unworthy, he said, he said even to loose the latchet of Christ's shoe. Now, what does that mean? See, in ancient Israel, to wash someone's feet uh, uh, was the work of a slave. And we know that Jesus will come to John to be baptized, and we know St. John's reaction. You know, you come to me, I need to be baptized by you. So what St. John the Baptist is saying is that he's so far from being worthy to baptize Christ that he was unworthy even to wash his feet, unworthy even to untie his shoes, which lets you know why Peter was so scandalized when Jesus went to wash the apostles' feet at the Last Supper. All right, and then uh, a final word on Advent. Advent means coming. It's about the coming of Christ. And on the Sundays of Advent, we, we prepare for, you know, the liturgical uh, memorial of his first coming in the stable at Bethlehem, but also his future second coming at the end of all things. But according to St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and you knew we were going to get through the hour without mentioning St. Bernard, <laughs> according to Bernard of Clairvaux, there is a third coming of Christ, a, hid, a hidden one. Listen, he said, we know that the coming of the Lord is threefold. The third coming is between the other two, and it is not visible in the way they are. At his first coming, our Lord was seen on earth and lived among men who saw him and hated, hated him. At his last coming, all flesh shall see the salvation of our God, and they shall look on him whom they have pierced. But in the middle, the hidden coming, only the chosen see him, and they see him within themselves and so their souls are saved. The first coming was in flesh and weakness. The middle coming is in spirit and power, and the final coming will be in glory and majesty. The, mi the middle coming, he said, is like a road that leads from the first coming to the last. At the first, Christ was our redemption. At the last, he will become manifest as best as our life. But in this middle way, okay, here and now, he is our rest and our consolation. And St. Bernard says, if, says, if you think that I'm inventing what I'm saying about the middle coming, listen to the Lord himself. If anyone loves me, he will keep my words, and the Father, Father will love him, and, he shall come, and we shall come to him. Elsewhere I have read, whoever fears the Lord does good things, but I think that what was said about whoever loves him was more important, that whoever loves him will keep his words. And where are those words to be kept? In the heart, certainly, as the prophet says, I have hidden your, hidden your sayings in my heart so that I do not sin against you. Keep the word of God in that way. Blessed are those who keep it. Let it penetrate deep into the core of your soul and then flow out again in your feelings and the way you behave. Because if you feed your soul well, well it will grow and rejoice. And that's no nonsense. All right, when we come back, we're going to be talking about active participation in the, whole, in the Holy Mass. What does that mean? Lots more when we return with No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I was recently, recently looking at a booklet by a Father Edward Maristany called Loving the Holy Mass. And in his introduction, he tells about giving talks to Catholic youth uh, precisely to inspire them to love the Holy Mass. Unfortunately, he says that the first questions the kids always asked, asked after his talk was, how late can I come to Mass and still fulfill my Sunday obligation? You know, the second question was like unto it. He says, it was, it was always, how soon can I leave and still fulfill my obligation? Furthermore, he said their number one impression of the Mass is that it's boring. And I'm afraid that's not just true of kids, but many adults as well, and maybe even you. But why should this be? Well, first off, Mass isn't meant to be, to be entertaining. So trying to make Mass more enjoyable or relatable or whatever is at best ill-conceived because Mass is not primarily about trying to hold our, att our attention. <clears throat> it's about worshiping God. Mass is about making present the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ sacramentally here and now. It's about the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ becoming present under the appearance of bread and wine. It is nothing short of a miracle. But just as the majority of people who were present at Calvary didn't understand the true nature of what was happening on the cross, you can't understand the true nature of what's happening uh, at the Mass unless you are engaged with the spiritual realities that can only be perceived with the eyes of faith. faith. And today I wanted to address some concrete ways to help you experience those spiritualities. Now, on the feast day yesterday, I decided to pray the whole rosary uh, in honor of the Immaculate Conception. And now this is in addition to the, the five decades that we pray daily as a family. And furthermore, I, I was inspired to pray all 15 traditional decades, plus the chaplet of John Paul II, also known as the Luminous Mysteries. Now, each mystery of the rosary, if you listen to the rosary here that we play at the end of our broadcast day, uh, you know that uh, every mystery of the rosary has a certain, certain virtue attached. So, for example, at the agony of the garden, we pray uh, that God would grant us true contrition. Or at the ascension, we ask for an increase of the virtue of hope, of hope and so on. Now, as I prayed the rosary with the, uh, with the help of my prayer book here, um, I noticed when I got to the fifth luminous mystery, which is, which is the institution of the Eucharist, um, I, you know, I was reminded that the petition is to attain active participation at Mass. Active participation. This was obviously a watchword at Vatican II, and especially after the introduction of the new Mass. But maybe you don't know, but it, but it had already been a maxim of the liturgical movement for 100 years back to the time of, of Pope St. Pius X and even before. In fact, it was, it was uh, Pius X who coined the motto, don't just pray at Mass, pray the Mass, which in his day, of course, meant following along with the Latin prayers in a hand missile. But St. Pius X also taught that all of the faithful should be able to pray or sing the responses and, and the people's prayers of the Holy Mass, so the Sanctus, the Gloria, the Credo, etc., in Latin. And this was then echoed by the Council Fathers of Vatican II in the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Liturgy Sacrosanctum Concilium. So this, this is active participation, engaging the heart and mind, the voice, and the whole body. See, I remember before my conversion, you know, being a non-Catholic at Mass, 
and, and feeling awkward and embarrassed that I didn't know what to say or what to do. You know, everybody else is responding to the priest. And I, and I remember, you know, just wondering what all the various postures were about, you know, all of the, uh, stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight that you do at mass. And then years later, I remember when my mom and dad, uh, who were not Catholic, came to my daughter's first communion mass, which was, you know, in the, extra, the extraordinary form, so traditional Latin mass. And during the credo at a high mass, at the words, at incarnatus est, everyone kneels, right? We're standing and then we all kneel, kneel. And then at the words, at homo factus est, everyone stands up again. And then we all sit down uh, when the priest sits while the choir finishes chanting the creed. And then the priest goes to the altar and turns to the people, says, Dominus Vobiscum, and everybody stands up. Then he says, Oremus, turns back to the altar, and we all sit right back down. Now, my poor, poor silver-haired old mother was just trying to keep up, you know, and having just managed to get to her feet when we all sat back down, she was so exasperated that she said out loud, oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> uh, quite a memory. Anyway, prior to the modern era, uh, there were no rubrics governing the postures of the congregation. You know, when to, when to stand or sit or kneel was just a matter of local custom. Uh, hence the old saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Now, of course, this all became more universal after the codification of the Roman rite by St. Pius V after the Council of Trent, you know, when everyone started doing as the Romans do. Uh, but, but there was still no official rules, if you will, for the congregation. And what most people did was simply to imitate the acolytes in choir, that is the, the chairs on either side of the sanctuary. And the postures of the acolytes are governed by the rubrics, and each posture has a specific meaning. And so in any case, there's a lot of activity in the, in the pew at Holy Mass, but active participation is more than just going through the motions. You know, I don't know how many times I've heard the old joke uh, about a Catholic, Catholic genuflecting before taking a seat in a movie theater, just out of force of habit. But the point is that it's well to know, to understand the meanings of the various postures and to be conscious of them rather than just, you know, acting out of routine. So to begin with, the sitting. Sitting is a, a posture of listening. So Catholics sit for the first reading and for the responsorial psalm or the gradual in the extraordinary form. Also for the second reading in the Novus Ordo. And we sit for the homily or sermon the offertory or preparation of the gifts and sitting shows that we're ready to hear and that, and that we're ready to receive. We sit to listen. In fact, and you do that with your own kids, right? Sit down. I have something to tell you. We sit to listen. And then, and then there's the standing. We stand for prayer and standing has been a posture of prayer for, you know, the Jewish people since uh, before the time of Christ and st and standing during prayer is also seen uh, throughout the different parts of the Bible, right? The Pharisee and the publican, for example. So as Catholics, we continue to utilize this posture for, for liturgical prayer today. And so some examples when we stand for prayer during the Mass, we stand when we pray the introit. Uh, we stand when we do the uh, pray the pray the priest prays the opening prayer or the collect. We stand for the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and in the Novus Ordo, they stand for the uh, prayers of the faithful. And we also stand and for the credo, for the, the uh, Nicene Creed, uh, for the recitation of what Christians have believed from the earliest times. We stand together to affirm our uni unity and our beliefs as Catholic Christians. And then we also stand for the gospel. Now, <clears throat> in our culture, standing is a sign of respect, respect, right? You stand when the judge comes into a courtroom, for example. 
And we certainly have a particular respect for the gospel, which is the words and deeds of Christ himself. Traditionally, though, though, standing for the gospel represents our being prepared to take the gospel out into the world, to share the gospel, to defend the gospel. In other, in other words, to stand up for the gospel. And then finally, we stand for the procession. You know, we stand at the, at the beginning of Mass as the sign of, res- of respect for the celebrant, right? the priest or bishop who's celebrating Mass in the person of Christ when he processes in uh, to begin the Mass, and then when he processes out once the Mass is ended. And then um, lastly, we have the kneeling. When you come into the church and you go to enter the pew, pew you know, we genuflect, right? You bend and touch the knee to the floor. And that's to, in order to acknowledge, to humbly acknowledge the Eucharistic presence of Jesus in the tabernacle. Because Catholics believe that Christ is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. We believe that when Jesus said, this, said, this is my body, that he meant it literally. That Jesus is veiled under the appearance of bread and wine, but his presence is, is fully and truly there. Now, this is something that the very earliest Christians believed and have continued to believe right down to the present day in the Catholic Church. So we acknowledge that by genuflection. And sadly, I have seen in recent years more and more Catholics failing to genuflect. And that's unfortunate because genuflect is, genuf, genuflection is a, a sign, a most a powerful sign that demonstrates that Catholics truly believe that Jesus is present in the tabernacle and that Jesus is Lord, Lord the Lord to whom every knee must bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So don't forget to genuflect before you get into the pew. And then kneeling kneeling proper, right? Kneeling down on both knees. That's a posture of something more than respect. That that is uh, traditionally a a posture of adoration. So another time that we kneel is during consecration, right? When Christ becomes present on the altar. And we kneel before and or and after Holy Communion. We kneel because we believe that Jesus is truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. That is what makes it Holy Communion, right, to receive Jesus. And, and if you believe that you're literally in the presence of Christ himself, falling to your knees is a perfectly natural thing to, thing to do. And so we always kneel during this part of the Mass, and we remain kneeling, until the elements are put back in the tabernacle and the tabernacle is closed. Now, our bodily attitude is meaningful. I tell my RCIA students, you know, my catechumens who are preparing to receive that sacramental grand slam, right? baptism, confirmation, first holy communion. I tell them when they approach the sanctuary to receive the blessed sacrament, that they should do so with their hands folded and their eyes downcast. Now, some people might think that's a bit extreme. But I ask you, would it be better to tell them to approach the Blessed Sacrament with their eyes wandering and their arms swinging? <laughs> to ask the question is to answer it. How we move, we move our body both reflects the state of our mind and affects the state of our mind. So, you know, if you're standing and sitting and kneeling at all the right, all the right times, but your heart isn't in it, or or you're distracted, or you're not even conscious of the reason that you're doing so in the first place, then you you lose the benefit of those postures, what what it's meant to accomplish. But if you come into Holy Mass and genuflect towards the tabernacle because you're humbly, humbly acknowledging Christ's true presence, 
And if you sit intent on listening with your whole mind, heart, and soul, and if you stand with your heart focused on prayer, and if you, if you kneel in adoration in the presence of your Savior, well, then your actions are true participation. And it's not just going through the motions. You know, I mentioned distractions. You hear that? <laughs> That's the sound of a fax machine. See, I actually un- unplugged the phone in my office before, you know, because I'm, I'm Skyping the show today because I've been sick. And I don't want to infect everybody at Virgin Most Powerful. And so right now, the stupid fa- fax machine is ringing built into my printer. So I would just like to say, whoever it is that is faxing me, the 1980s called and they would like their technology back. Okay, I'm never going to answer or respond to a fax. Just want to let you know that right now. Okay, Uh, looks to me like we are out of time for this segment. So we are going to be, uh, is that right? Yeah, I can hear the music. So we are going to be back in just a little bit more on active participation and talking about the essential principles of the spiritual life when we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Yeah, before the break, I got that, that fax, and I went and, went and said to my wife, I said, I can't believe it. We never, never get a fax unless I'm doing the show from home. That's the only time that stupid fax alarm ever rings. And she says, I know, I think, I think it's Satan. And I just said, well, if he wants me, he can email. Okay, I also mentioned uh, before the break, uh, distractions, being distracted at Mass. And that's the other, that's the other topic I wanted to address. Uh, regarding the active participation, you know, lots of people get distracted at Holy Mass. Uh, lots of people have a really difficult time focusing, focusing their attention on the Holy Mass. But there are a number of ways to combat this. And so this is actually from a list compiled by a father, Paul, Paul Michael Piega, on the Church Pop website. And uh, six things to do when you're distracted at Mass. So number one, he says, get to Mass a little early. You see, I've often said that being on time for Mass means being there before the priest processes in. But actually getting to Mass early gives you some some time, you know, to pray and to acclimate yourself, right? To transition from what's going on in your personal life and whatever's in the news and and focus on on what's about to take place at Holy Mass, namely offering the sacrifice of Jesus to God the Father. So number one, get there early, so preparation. Number two, he says, come to Mass with a specific intention. You know, at the beginning of every Mass, they announce the intention uh, for that Mass, right? Somebody has has formally asked them to pray for their intentions. So, you know, for the repose of the soul of John Smith or for the special intentions of the Jones family, whatever it might be. But, you know, since we are, all of us, part of the common priesthood of the baptized, Lay people enjoy a real participation in the priestly role, role of our Lord. And so we should come to Mass with our own personal intentions, with our own offering. And during the Mass, your mind starts to wander. You can bring yourself back by remembering that intentioning or, or, or that offering that you're making. It's something that's important to you or something that'll help you to, to keep you stay focused. And you, and you can also offer up prayers for your, your friends, your relatives, benefactors, uh, living and the dead at various parts of the mass, like the offertory or or after communion, for example. So so uh, have a, have an intention. 
Number three is to actively participate in the responses at the Mass. You know, if there's one thing that Vatican, Vatican II and the new Mass managed to accomplish, it was to drill into the heads of Catholics that they need to actively participate in the liturgy. You know, you know uh, my family and I commonly assisted the extraordinary form of the Mass at a diocesan church, and most of the folks there are following the priest's prayers in the Missal, and uh, they're chanting the responses and the Sanctus, the Creator, the Glory, etc., which I suspect is what the Council Fathers of Vatican II were really on about in the first place. And, and that's why it's called assisting at Holy Mass, because by participating in the prayers and the actions, you are thereby offering the Mass in spiritual union with the priest at the altar. And that's going to help keep you focused. Uh, number four, you can read the Mass readings before, before you go to Holy Mass. And this is just a good practice, um, especially for those of us who can't go to, uh, cannot attend daily Mass. You can go to the Missal uh, uh, or you can go on the Internet and read the readings of the day. But for Sunday, looking over the readings ahead of time, especially from your own Bible, not only, not only helps you become more familiar with the scriptures themselves and you know where, how things fit together, but also the context of the day's readings. And assuming that your priest or deacon preaches on, preaches on the readings, it can help you better understand the homily as well. Uh, number five, <laughs> he asks the question, what if you're feeling tired or sleepy? Well, take my advice and do not close your eyes under the assumption that it will help you listen better, or the next thing you know, your wife's going to be poking you in the ribs because you're snoring. Okay, not that that's ever happened to me personally, <laughs> but I understand it happens. Um, you know, uh, Father says that, uh, you know, don't be afraid to get up out of the pew and to go stand in the back of the church for a few minutes, walk around a little bit, you know, do, do a seventh inning stretch, in other words. And then number six, he says, if you have sacred images or statues of saints in your church, and I'm sorry, that that by itself, self, I fear, is, is kind of a sad commentary on the state of the church today. He says, if you have sacred images or statues in your church, but if you do, he says, take a quick glance at the image or statue and ask for that saint's intercession right there, right, right then. Ask them to pray for you that you will assist at Mass well. Because you have to remember that the church triumphant is present at the Mass, at every Mass. Even though we can't physically see them, we know that the, that the altar is surrounded by angels. You know, and for me, that's the final point, that there is a whole supernatural reality that is unseen, but is present to us in the symbols, in the words and gestures and postures of the Holy Mass. That is what liturgy is all about, all about making the spiritual sensible. And being conscious of that reality is what separates active participation from just going, going through the motions. And that, as we say, is no nonsense. Okay. Um, Coming up, coming up next, I wanted to talk about some essential principles for the spiritual life, to help you grow in the spiritual life. Your personal spiritual life is the most important thing in the world. It is absolutely essential for answering the universal call to holiness, right? which being a true Christian demands. That's what the church is teaching. That's what our Lord taught us. So there's a, num there's a number of important principles 
that you can follow, I think really that you must follow in order to have that personal ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ that will help enable you to live the new life of the Spirit, which is the purpose of our baptism. Now, we're not going to get through that whole list of principles today, but, uh, but um, uh, it's going to likely, you know, it'll bleed into next week's program. But I want to state right off that this list was heavily influenced by Father Bill McCarthy of Our Father's House in, out in Connecticut. I met Father Bill years ago, and he was already an octogenarian, but he kept a daily schedule that would have exhausted a man half his age. He's the director of Our Father's House Retreat Center, where I was booked for a weekend conference, and also also professor of Mariology at Holy Apostles Seminary in Cromwell, Connecticut, uh, where he also booked me for some additional talks. And he's a popular preacher, is the author of many, many books, including several on the encyclicals of Pope St. John Paul II. I, I have probably five or six of his books on my shelf, uh, you know, easy access in the office right here, right here. And although I am more of um, a, a traditional Catholic, and, and he's somewhat on the charismatic side, and, you know, he celebrates the new mass exclusively and so on, the two of us, we just hit it off immediately. Um, I think partially it's because his priestly formation was in the preconciliar church. And so he, so he just very naturally, I mean, he's like Bishop Sheen. He, he employed the hermeneutic of continuity uh, to the teachings of Vatican II, just as a matter of course, you know, which is to say that he is every inch a no-nonsense Catholic priest. And in his writings, he enumerates 15 spiritual principles that really form the bedrock of his very practical teaching on the spiritual life. And so it's with deep respect and gratitude to Father Bill that I uh, give, give my take on these 15 essential principles for the spiritual life, because they have been really helpful to me. Pardon, pardon me. Okay, number one, poverty of spirit. This is the first and the most important uh, principle. What our Lord called poverty of spirit in the Beatitudes is what Dom Jean-Pierre de Cassade called abandonment to divine providence. To be poor in spirit is to accept everything that happens to us as coming from the hand, hand of a loving father. God is the supreme master of the universe. He is the potter. We are the clay. He is the creator. We are, we are the creatures. So, as Father Bill says, let God be God. And how do you do that? By surrender. You let go of your plans and be open to his plan. You let go of, of division and be open to unity because all is one in him. One, one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. He is simplicity itself, wisdom itself, truth itself, holiness itself. To let God be God is to recognize, first and foremost, that you and I are not God. That is a simple and self-evident truth. Unfortunately, because of original sin, most people don't really believe it. Or well, they don't behave like they believe it. I mean, because realistically, most of us live like humanists and, and secularists and, and practical pagans. And by seeking freedom from, from restraint, freedom from his will, freedom from his plan, we wind up, end up being slaves to sin. So the number one principle is to embrace poverty of spirit and let God be God. Number two, Jesus is Lord. In the Holy Mass, uh, the priest says it again and again, the Lord be with you. In Latin, that's, that's Dominus Vobiscum. 
And that Latin word for Lord, dominus, gives us many English words like dominion and, and dominate and dominant and, and domineer, etc. So we want the Lord Jesus to have dominion in our lives. And one way to affect this is to consecrate yourself to health to him often. To consecrate your mind, your heart, your will, uh, your emotions, your time and talent, your friends and your foes, your past and your future. Uh, um, you know, your, your whole self, your whole life. You just give it all over to the dominion of Jesus. As St. Paul says, take every thought, thought captive to Christ and be willing to embrace the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience according, according to your state of life. You know, for example, I'm a husband and a father of six, so I can't simply divest myself of all my worldly goods, you know, like St. Francis of Assisi and live the life, the life of a barefoot mendicant, because I've got a responsibility to my family. I need to, to support them, to provide. But that responsibility also means spending time with them, with them and loving them and praying with them and giving myself giving of myself rather than just, you know, relentlessly pursuing money that can only ever give them material things. So the question is, how? How do you embrace a life of poverty, chastity, and obedience? And we'll talk about the answer when we return in just a little bit, right after these messages here on No Nonsense Catholic at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along with us. Uh, right before the break, I asked the question, how can you embrace a life of poverty, chastity, and obedience according to your state of life? And the answer is this spiritual principle that we're, that we're talking about right now, by making Jesus the Lord of your life. See, by making Jesus your treasure, you can be poor in spirit. By making Jesus your romance, you can be, be pure. By making Jesus your Lord, you can be obedient. And Father Bill uh, McCarthy recommends a, a simple prayer. He says, Dear Jesus, to you I consecrate my mind, my heart, my lips, my entire self. I am yours. Amen. And for, and for those of you not watching on YouTube, uh, I, when I did that prayer, I made that consecration, I was making the sign of the cross with my thumb on my forehead heart, heart, and lips, and then the, the regular sign of the cross for my entire self. Now, personally, and, and that's a great prayer. Um, personally, I like to renew my morning offering offering throughout the day, and I do it with this little prayer that I found. Actually, it was in a children's prayer book, um, and it's very old. It's, O Jesus, sweet Jesus, O, o Jesus divine, my life and my death unto thee I resign. Every action of mine shall thy patronage claim, for whatever I do, shall be done, done in thy name. Amen. Which brings us to principle number three. <coughs> pardon me. I beg your pardon, just getting over that, uh, <clears throat> being a little under the weather here. Principle number three is thy will be done. To, to live in the kingdom of his divine will is the greatest holiness. 
Next to praising and worshiping God, the highest, highest act of holiness is to listen, to discern, to obey the will of God in your life. God has a will for us, us, his children. He has a plan. And the greatest gift that we can offer is what St. Paul calls the obedience of faith, to give our total yes to God. Jesus, obviously, Jesus always did the will of God the Father. That was his food, his sustenance, John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Mary always did the will of God. She gave her fiat to the angel Gabriel, her total yes to God. I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done to me according to thy word. The saints, the saints are those who always strive, strive to do the will of God. Meditation, prayer, and obedience. These are the keys to meditate on the person, the presence, and the teaching of Jesus. To let them permeate your mind and heart. And then, as Mary said, do whatever he tells you. You know, I've often said that God's will will for your life is not some uns- inscrutable mystery. Jesus is very plain in his inspired word. He says that the wise man who builds his house upon the rock is he who listens to the word of the Lord and obeys it. And if you love me, he says, keep my commandments. Obedience isn't a popular concept these, these days. But the obedience of faith is key to doing the will of God. In the Garden of Eden, the one test, the one thing, thing that established the sovereignty of God was obedience. Nothing is said about love or purity or patience because obedience includes all of, all of those things and more. The one thing that brought us back to the tree of life was obedience, the obedience of Jesus and Mary. So, so through the disobedience of our first parents, we lost sanctifying grace. We lost the life of the Spirit dwelling in us. And through the obedience of Jesus and Mary, we regain it, in it, but only if we, like they, obey. The fourth essential principle, uh, spiritual principle, is speak, Lord, your servant is listening. God is speaking um, to all of us all the time. He speaks externally through his covenant, through the scriptures, the, the church, through creation. Uh, through signs and symbols, people and events. He also speaks internally, through our, our thoughts and our intuitions, sometimes through dreams, even uh, locutions and visions. You know, uh, Father Bill McCarthy said that the most often repeated theme in the Bible over 20,000 times is that God speaks to us. I remember somebody once asked the, the, great, the great medieval saint, Catherine of Siena, why God spoke to people so often in biblical times but so rarely today, today for them being the 14th century. And, and St. Catherine said the reason was that in biblical times, people prayed, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And today people pray, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. So we need to practice listening to God in the many ways that he speaks to us. Uh, St. Augustine gave some advice. He said, we, we speak to God when we pray, and he answers when we read the scriptures. And I find that to be true in my own life, especially when I pray the Liturgy of the Hours. You know, what better prayers could there be than, than those that were inspired by God, right? The Psalms and the other scriptures. And that puts me in union with the Church, in conversation with, with God. So I speak, you know, with the Lord's own words, and He answers me. 
with his words. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And according to Father Bill, we learned, you know, as we learn to hear the voice of our shepherd, we come into his flock, uh, into his church, into his kingdom. <clears throat> he says the whole life and example of Jesus can be summed up in the words, yes, Father. Because Jesus always listened to and discerned and obeyed the voice of his father. Jesus said, amen, amen, I say to you, a son cannot do anything, anything on his own but only what he sees his father doing. For what he does, his son will do also. That's John 5, 19. This is the key to that more abundant life that Jesus promised in John chapter 10. For him and for us, life is a filial and obedient relationship with the source of life, which is to say with God the Father. All life, all holiness comes from him, through the Son, in the Spirit. To listen, to discern, to obey the voice of God is to be truly alive in his, his kingdom. And speaking of the kingdom, principle number five, the kingdom of God is within you. This is what uh, St. Bernard was, talk, was talking about in the first segment when he talked about the, the three comings of Christ, that he comes, you know, uh, at, in Bethlehem in his earthly ministry, and he comes again at the end of time. But there's that middle coming, which is now, where we see God. It's a hidden company coming where God is within us. <clears throat> and we listen to and obey, and, and we discern the will of God, and we're transplanted into this new kingdom, the realm of the Spirit, where God is God and Jesus is Lord. And we think thoughts that are inspired by his Spirit and have desires that are inflamed by his love. We have lives empowered by his spirit. And our wisdom, love, and power is that of his kingdom. And we become ever more poor in spirit and humble of heart, of heart and, and forgiving and loving and pure and childlike and obedient as the spirit of God rules our lives. And the kingdom we find is now among us. Yes, the kingdom of God is within us. As it says in Luke's gospel. And then we understand the kingdom parables. Whereas Jesus taught, they can only be understood by those who stand under Jesus. In his own words, whoever ever belongs to God hears the words of God. And then principle number six, as I suspect as far as we're going to get today, okay, that Jesus comes with a kingdom of love and mercy. He comes to save us, to cleanse us of guilt as we repent and are, and are willing to forgive those who have hurt us. So principle six is the cleansing blood of the lamb. He cleanses us through his blood shed for us on the cross. Like the old hymn says, there's power in the blood. Through his blood, Jesus gave the church the keys to forgive give, and to unbind. On Easter Sunday, after his, his horrific death, and in his glorious resurrection, he appears to his first priest, priests, the apostles, shows them the wounds of his crucifixion and says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And when he had, he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven them, and whose, and whose sins you retain, they are retained. 
So just as in the Old Testament, you know, in the Old Testament, it was the priest who poured the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies for the forgiveness of sins. And so in the New Testament also, the blood of the lamb is administered through the priest, priest through the sacraments. Consider the sacrament of penance. Every time we make a good confession, three, three miracles take place. You know, you, you understand that three miracles take place. You had your sins taken away in baptism, and then, you know, uh, you have the unfortunate, uh, you're, you're unfortunate enough to fall into sin again. But God, Jesus instituted the sacraments to forgive the sin committed after baptism. And so the first miracle is that every bit of sin and guilt is washed away when you make a good confession. And the second miracle is that all the bitterness and hatred and unforgiveness is released if you realize the truth of Christ's words spoken by the priest in his person. I absolve you of all your sins. Understand, this is far beyond human forgiveness. This is an encounter with the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away your sins. He doesn't just forgive your sins, he takes them away. And third, we are given the power to forgive ourselves and to get on with our lives. So many people walk around loaded with guilt. They repress their guilt. They deny it. They rationalize it. They project it onto others. Only this sacrament can cleanse, cleanse us of our guilt and purge that guilt. Forgive our sins and absolve our sins. This is a powerful and essential key to the spiritual life that the blood of the Lamb cleanses. All right, friends, it's been uh, terrific being with you this week. I'm afraid that uh, our time is nearly up, so I'm going to have to say goodbye for now. But I hope that you'll be able to, able to join us again next week. And I want to say thank you so much for your support of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, we couldn't do what we do here without you. And, uh, and we do appreciate it very much. Also coming up this January the 16th, we've got a, um, uh, another virtual conference, our annual spiritual, spiritual warfare conference with Jesse Romero is coming up. And also Dr. Dan Schneider going to be talking about spiritual warfare, uh, St. Joseph, the terror of de demons. And of course, Pope Francis has just made this the uh, year of St. Joseph, this ecclesial year. We're going to talk about that next week and more about the essential principles of the spiritual life. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for support. And may God richly bless you and your family.